I'm on the ride of a lifetime. I'm on a ship that's sailing to uncharted shore, and I won't be coming back here anymore. I'm on a wave. I'm on a mountain. I'm on a roller coaster sailing across the sky. And the only trouble is in wondering why. Live from Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we uh, love you and we seek you. We want to be uh, used by you in a gentle, friendly, kind, loving way to people who are seeking truth. Be with us tonight, our volunteers and people who help and all those who are watching either here or out there uh, live or in the archives. Uh, we're just grateful for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Tim LaHaye, I think it's LaHaye, or is it LaHaye? LaHaye. Tim LaHaye, author of uh, many best-selling Christian books promoting end times, The Rapture. He's the author of uh, the Left Behind series, has died. And he is now experiencing, in my opinion, the only valid rapture, resurrection, judgment, and second coming that exists for humanity any longer his own. So uh, thanks for the entertainment, Brother Tim, but uh, I think that's what it all means. And you may disagree, and I may be wrong, but to me, it's all individual now. And, and you die, you're taken up, you're raptured, you're judged, you're resurrected to the body that you've been given, and you go on into the eternities uh, and uh, go from there. With that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse. One of the uh, key indicators of spiritual maturity uh, in this world is the means by which we comfort ourselves in the face of trials and difficulties and despair and disappointment. Do we call out to God or do we call out to ourselves? I was born, and you know this, I talk about it often, really a man of the flesh. Uh, I mean, like Esau, Jacob and Esau. Uh, I used to mock the term faith when I was LDS before I went on the mission and used to quote Nietzsche and him saying, faith means not wanting to know the truth. And a pretty, pretty harsh, cynical uh, statement. But like all things, in some ways Nietzsche was right. Uh, we're all liable to hide blindly and refuse to see things under the guise of faith, you know, and we've seen it, and we've all done it. Uh, what was interesting is that as a man of consummate fleshly ways, I would console myself in times of distress and despair with every source other than God. Um, there was never enough food, sometimes there's still not, um, never enough women, 
never enough substances, never enough violence, never enough porn, never enough diversions. I clung to whatever diversion I could find to kill the pain, really. It's to kill the pain of living, because life can really be difficult. And I really related to Esau in the Old Testament. In fact, Genesis 27, 42, Jacob tricks his brother Esau, who was a hunter of hunters, and, but had no relationship to faith. And Jacob, the sneaky Jacob, he tricked his brother, and Jacob's mother comes to him and says, Behold, your brother Esau, as touching you, as concerning you, does comfort himself proposing to kill you. So what that says is, in other words, his imaginations of murdering you, Jacob, are comforting him. Um, have you ever comforted yourself with wicked imaginations? I have. And from people, you know, it's, it's, it's proverbial. You look at cartoons, you know, and guys are stranded on desert islands, and they sit there and the boop pops up an imagination of a hamburger, you know. And when you're in trouble, when you're in despair, you turn to these types of things. And it's not that God doesn't provide us with things to comfort us. We know that our spouses are supposed to be a source of comfort. Nothing wrong with that. And we know that wine in Scripture uh, can be a source of comfort. Uh, nothing, nothing wrong with those things being a source of comfort. We know that good food can be a source of comfort in Scripture. Uh, in fact, we read when Sarah died, it says in Genesis 24:67, and Isaac brought her uh, into his mother Sarah's tent speaking of Rebecca, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So God gives us human relationships to comfort us, but the question is, what is your primary source of comfort in this world? Um, and what do you turn to most often as you strive to get through the, the discomforts and the discouraging times of life? Coming to, the, coming to know the Lord, I realized that he is the best painkiller, far better than hydrocodone and a shot uh, because of something, because he doesn't have side effects. And his side effects, if, he ha if they're there, are good. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effectual in the enduring of some sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Comfort or suffering, it's for your consolation and salvation. If you find yourself turning to things constantly in the world, things of what we would call the flesh, time and time again, and you're tiring of the wasted, ineffectual ways that those things are working for you, uh, turn to the source that gives life, and that's Christ Jesus. And with that, how about a minute from our board of direction? The board of direction. You know, our ministry, really, whether you know this or not, we are very supportive of Christian artists. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean artists that create Christian arts, 
but Christians who are artists. And there is a difference. Um, the ministry in and of itself is about creating and, and, and letting people express themselves in some way or another. We have people who have expressed themselves through different shows they've done. And they've created those and their persona and the things they want to talk about. That's a form of art. And specifically, we have Bishop Earl and we have Warren. They both, that's an expression. That's an art. And uh, I, we love it. The open, free-flowing ability to express. Coming up with another one, uh, maybe, from a, a sister who's going to be doing a show. Um, from our programming, our sermons, our books, uh, and other things that we're involved in, we believe that we are creators. And we are creators of art in some sense or another. And art is interpreted by the Spirit, similar to the way we interpret the Word of God. and similar to the way we interpret life. That's a very subjective thing. That we, we, bring, we bring in what God shows us and, and we see, and then we reinterpret that and present it to the world. So, Derek, on our walls, Derek's going to show you, he's going to scan over. On our walls, we have some art, uh, and, and just from people who have been either involved in the ministry, uh, either loosely or closely, doesn't really matter. You can see over there in the far corner, there's a picture. Those are two women, and they are going up into heaven, into the flames of God. That's a work of art by Kelly, and uh, she's a, a professional in the state, but she's also an artist, and it's a beautiful piece, and it shows you her version. You can see the heart painted on the woman going up there with her, that they're going into the flames of God. God is fire. God's a living fire. And then Kelly also did the sign next to it, which kind of are the signature stamp for interior. We have faith, and, uh, and she did those big, bold things. Then we have hope. And then Derek's going to spin all the way down, and he's going to show you. And we have love. And those are window coverings here in the building. And those are big kind of Andy Warhol-ish type of uh, art pieces that we decorate um, uh, the building in. So um, talk. We uh, have. Hold on. I don't know. With the camera. All right. In for. Wendy, and a great photographer, and here's some of the pieces she's done. This is right, uh, there's a sunrise, and then also something else, beautiful piece. Wendy Webster, she's that's, a, that's something she's taken out where she uh, lives now, in, I think in Colorado. Beautiful stuff. Uh, we have writers. Um, and this, this is Slug Magazine. This stands for Salt Lake Underground. You open it up, there's ads for uh, all sorts of deviant lifestyles. There's uh, a lot of homosexual things. There's a lot of LGBT. There's a lot of uh, bar advertisements and things like that. But we have someone who comes to campus, Cassidy, my daughter, who's a sold-out Christian. She writes for Slug. There's an article in this, this one from her. And what are we doing? We are people who love the Lord, that on our own are involved in different elements of the art and showing you. Then you also know my other daughter. She does, we have five CDs that are putting the word to music. That's a creative expression to reach out and share something on our hearts for God. So, and you know, just recently, uh, now I have no, uh, this person, he is an artist well before he ever came to campus and will continue to be an artist on his own. We don't 
have any representation of him, but he does come to campus. He's, uh, his name is Richard Dutcher, and he's a film director. He's a writer-director, and he was uh, making movies as an active Latter-day Saint um, and started hanging out at camp. We of grace. Well, Richard will, uh, I'm sure, sell them to you if you want. This is an appeal. It is a great film that appeals to Christian love, a Christian unity, a Christian compassion for others in the midst of their plight of sin and difficulty. Our family has for decades been movie buffs. We see everything except some blockbuster, summer blockbuster stuff. We see everything. And uh, I can say from the bottom of my heart, I'm not saying this because my friend or because he goes to campus. I can say from the bottom of my heart that States of Grace hits it dead on. I think it's one of the best, if not the best movies to talk about Christian grace, Christian love, and Jesus. Now here's the catch. Here's the thing. Uh, it's a movie that uh, some former Mormons have watched this and told me, yeah, there's too many overtones. It's because it's, it's centered around a couple mis LDS missionaries. And Richard, uh, he includes the culture of the Mormon culture of the Mormon missionaries. Um, but he does it uh, uh, honestly because what he represents is really how it is. And he represents what they're about. But he also even-handedly gives the real message of what we're in this for, and that's Christ Jesus, forgiveness, and grace. And if those overtones over, uh, of Mormonism come through too heavy for you, you're missing the point. His point was to show that stuff is a side issue. The real deal is grace and love and compassion. And it, it comes through this film. So another fantastic expression, uh, artistic expression. And I highly recommend States of Grace and the other films uh, that Richard uh, has done and will continue to do. We have Shield of Faith. This, I, I had a friend who's read hundreds of books. He read this book and he told me it gives the best description of the flesh and the spirit he's ever read. This was written by a, a cop here in Salt Lake. He's a Christian. His name's Brandon Peterson. And it's, it's, a, it's from a police person's perspective of being in the trenches with very difficult people and what it's like to see the flesh. So there's another uh, piece of art. And, and, and then we go over to our wall. Derek's going to show us all Aaron Walquist. He's a, a former, who is now a Catholic. He comes sometimes to campus and he's joined the Catholic church. That's where he has found a home for himself, but he has joined in and he's done some metal work. We have the X, we have the Star of David, we have the iRobot icon, which I'm not going to go and explain any of these. We have, uh, of course, Daniel in the lion's den. If you could see that live, it's really amazing. We have the cross in steel, it's welded. And then we have, uh, I don't know, I can't remember, is that Rembrandt? Who uh, painted the ship? And then we have the Z, and then we have Christ there. And then next to that, we have a crown of thorns and... We just, we just really are about hoping people will subjectively express 
their love, their faith in God through the arts. Now, finally, uh, that Z, I'm, what I'm going to do is just show you really quickly what the Z represents. Every single one of those symbols has something, but this is for our board of direction. Uh, we know that this is our flesh, and when we start off and become Christians, um, we are all flesh, and then in this part of the Z, there's very little spirit, right? Because we, we just come to know who God is, and we're born again, but there's very little spirit. And as we move this way in our flesh, this guy gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you can see the ultimate end of this guy and this girl is dead. It's in a corner. It can't go anywhere else. But as we move this way in our spirit, which grows by virtue of faith and love and trust, our spirit person gets bigger. I, I'm making that a spirit person, by the way. Bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's open. It, that's the whole thing. We're supposed to go to places where we completely grow in the spirit. And we operate by the Spirit. I have a friend at the back who's a fantastic artist, John. He's going to start displaying maybe some of his works. And he talks that everything is Spirit. Now, this isn't some maniacal, far-out stuff. When you start to see this stuff, um, that's what the Z represents. That's why we put it in steel weld. And if you're an artist and you have something that you want us to uh, display for you and you're a Christian, we would love to do it. Consider that, and with that, let's talk about creation. Oh, wait, got a shout out. The live chatters who are on, I guess as the show goes on, there are people online and they're chatting with each other. And last week we had somebody from Peru and somebody from Russia and somebody from China, and they all start chatting with each other. Tell us where you're from if you're chatting so that we can know. Wendy has requested that. All right. What's that? Go to the live page and chat if you want to chat. The live page. All right. Last week we talked about two phrases relative to God and his creation. There's creatio ex materia, which means out of material. Or there's creatio ex nihilo, which means creation out of nothing at all. And we talked all about the Christian view and how that has grown from the Old Testament times where it was pretty much creatio ex materia and then with Greek influence it became creatio ex nihilo, all right, or out of nothing. Well, we left off saying that initially Mormon doctrine went hand in hand with the Christian belief that God created everything by and through Christ, creatio ex nihilo, meaning he did it all out of nothing. Early in the Book of Mormon, in Jacob 4.9, it says God brought everything into existence by speaking. That's the traditional Christian view. Um, even in the Joseph Smith translation of the Book of Genesis, and uh, has Moses not saying anything about a pre-existent matter or... Uh, and the LDS-owned newspaper called the Evening and Morning Star ran articles all the way up until 1832 uh, that validated the idea that God created everything out of nothing. So Mormonism, as it does in many places, echoed 
standard Christianity all the way up through the early 1830s, and, and even though it really began only in 1830 officially. But as we said a few weeks uh, last week, thinkers in the Enlightenment era in the 1700s saw matter and material as always having to had, always as having existed. And Joseph Smith hooked into this thinking and he adopted it and he incorporated it into his teaching. And remember, however, he was not the first Christian thinker to do this. Um, a Universalist publication in 1826 said, We are not bound to believe that all things were created out of nothing, lest we should presuppose that all will return to nothing again in the final end. As we may safely believe that anything which has a beginning of existence can never have eternity connected with it. Now, this was a Universalist saying, this predated Smith's uh, uh, Book of Mormon publication or anything like that or his advanced thought. Translated, that saying means if something has a beginning, it will certainly have an end. But if it has always existed, it will always exist. And so the Age of Enlightenment thinkers of reason said, look it, we don't believe God created everything out of nothing. Creatio ex nihilo is, is, is an untruth. It's a mystical lie of, of these zealous believers, we believe that matter has always been around and that if there is even a God, he created things out of that pre-existent matter. I believe ideas like this led Smith to teach many years later that everything that can be considered real or material has therefore always existed. And anything that has a beginning, he taught, if you can give me anything that has a beginning, it's not real, it's untrue, and it will end. That's how uh, Joseph Smith started to think on this stuff. So the first time anything appears in LDS writings about this is in Doctrine and Covenants 93, 22 through 33, and it speaks of element, that means matter, and spirit being eternal. Matter and spirit being eternal this is the first time. And then in 1839, Parley P. Pratt, a great LDS thinker, affirmed, as did theologian Joseph Priestley in 1777, some 60 years earlier, that matter and spirit are two great principles of all existence. That means matter and spirit have always been. In other words, every animate or inanimate object is composed of either matter, spirit, or both. It was in 1842 that Joseph Smith introduced the doctrine that all spirits are simply refined matter. <laughs> Derek's been hitting the sauce tonight and a few other things. I try, I try with the guy. Uh, when this came out, it winds up meaning in the long run that listen to this closely. Since spirit has the same properties as physical matter, remember, and physical matter cannot be created nor destroyed, then human beings composed of a body, material, a soul, material, a spirit, material, anything that has, uh, is real is matter, exist, you ready, independently of God. This is when 
Joseph Smith went from early Mormonism, Book of Mormon, typical traditional Christian, just branch of Christianity, to stepping into a realm of the Age of Enlightenment. And when he said that all matter, anything, everything that can be considered real is material, he stepped away from their God needing to be involved in the creation of man. And um, it's from this very position that Mormondom uh, changed views on God, his nature, Christ, our elder brother, uh, us becoming gods, that all started to come off and springboard from this idea of the Age of Enlightenment that matter has always existed. Once this principle was fully embraced by Joseph Smith, create and created, which are found in his translation of Genesis and the Book of Moses, became or turned to organized in his Book of Abraham. So he started off and he said, created, created, not knowing the Hebrew Barach and all those different meanings of it. He simply wrote about created, created in his book of Genesis, in his translation of the book of Moses. But when he got to the book of Abraham, all of a sudden God didn't create, he organized. And that's how he progressed or digressed in his thinking on matter. And it was here at this point that Smith made clear his agreement with the thinkers of the Age of Enlightenment of his day. And, and this is what they said, the elements are eternal. That which has a beginning will surely have an end. That's their argument. So if man has a beginning out of nothing, and God created man out of nothing, that man will certainly have an end. But if man has always existed, that man cannot cease to exist. And that was the logic. It was also here that Mormonism tore away further from the view that's not found in Hellenistic Judaism. Their Hellenistic Judaism fully endorses creatio ex nihilo. And the apostolic church fully endorsed creatio ex nihilo. The early church fathers, all, Middle Ages, all, even in the Reformation, all supported creatio ex nihilo out to this day and age. And ignoring all that was once taught, um, by Smith, he changed and he engaged in so-called science and turned from the Bible. And I'm just going to give you two passages which I've already given you. Colossians 1, 16, 17 says, For by him were all things, that's past in the Greek, everything created, that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. That's talking about the word of God. And then, of course, Romans 4, 17, it says, Even God who quickened the dead and called into existence those things which be not as though they were. He called into existence those things that are not as if they were. And that is a form of, that's a, of passages that support creatio ex nihilo. So to me, this is, a de, this is a departing signature step in the mind of Joseph Smith from organizing that Christian movement to kind of restore the church uh, with the Book of Mormon and its contents, which are primarily pretty Christian, like 98% of it's pretty Christian in terms of an Old Testament narrative. And, uh, and he began to build a non-Christian empire, in my estimation. Remember, the empire, not necessarily the people, that's built on money and matter and men becoming gods. 
and that was the, that was the split. Uh, as stated last week, either God created all things from nothing, or matter has always existed somehow, and God and all the other gods before or after him are relegated to just organizing matter that has always existed somehow, you know? To me, it's really simple, and maybe it's simple to you that I'm a simpleton, that God cre- started everything. And, but to other more scientifically minded, they say there's no way. Matter has always been around. God only, if there is a God, if they agree to a God, he just simply organizes it. Stepping away for a second from apologetics and all of our different opinions and things, I think the stance a person takes on how they see where matter came from is really important to the way they will ultimately view God. Um, Will you see God as the originator of all things? Or will you say that he couldn't originate anything? All he can do is fabricate things. Uh, You choose. Will you see God as incapable of creating something out of nothing? Or is he fully capable of creating, even speaking, all things into existence? Again, that will determine the type of God you worship. And if you choose... Uh, with your willing mind to, to worship a God who can't do a thing, create things out of nothing, I'm not going to judge you. I'm going to tell you I don't believe that. I see differently, but I'll love you. And I think we ought to do that with everybody. You have the right to believe these things. But when you narrow it down, that's kind of the decision you're making about the God you worship. God either submits to the demands of material that has preexisted, him even, amidst laws and principles, and is capable of doing... Uh, some things, or he's, you know, he's less than supreme. Is he supreme or less than supreme? Is he simply a glorified human being that has always existed materially, limited by the material universe, or does he govern it all because he created it all? Based on the biblical account and its descriptions of him, I personally choose to believe that no matter what the world and the heavens were composed of, if God used pre-existing matter to create the heavens and the earth, uh, or if he, you, or he spoke everything into existence at the creations, irrelevant to me, I believe that all the material he ever used was created by him out of nothing at the beginning. Now, whether he used pre-existing to form this earth, who knows? But it didn't pre-exist him. That's how I see it, and that's how I read the Bible, and you can be different. But for me, this approach that I choose to take, he receives all glory, he is the one who has the power, and he is the one who is worthy of worship. Uh, and so there it is with, it comes to creatio ex nihilo and creatio ex materia. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 590-8413. While the operators are trying to revive Derek from uh, some kind of stupor he's going on uh, through back there, uh, take a look at this, and we'll come back and take your phone calls. Come here for a second, really quickly. 
Uh, what you just saw was an announcement for a play that we're uh, putting on in October of this uh, year. And we're going to try to do an annual play and hope as we go on, other people will submit scripts for us to perform. Come up, be, be careful. I don't like them either. And um, Marnita is going to be directing this play and uh, talk about an artistic eye and view. This is Marnita. And so I neglected to mention her. Is there anything that you want to say? We're starting up live auditions uh, tomorrow night and through the week. You want to say anything, Marnita, to the audience? Oh, well, praise the Lord, first of all. And um, this is an excellent play. It's written by my pastor, Sean McCraney, but it is a wonderful play. It's called Sorrow, and I theater is my life, my passion, and we're going to have an interactive venue here where it's going to bless you. So, But tomorrow, we do have auditions tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So come out on an audition. Um, uh, community theater needs to come alive in this city, and we're willing to put our foot forward on it. Amen, okay. sister. Thank you. Thank you so much. So join us uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Uh, we can see from the live chat, we have live chatters tonight from Texas, Arizona, Florida, Salt Lake City, Tennessee, and South Carolina. Those of you who are chatting in Salt Lake City, tell your friends who are actors, or, or they say actresses anymore. I have no idea. Those people who do the performing. Uh, tell them to come and try out. We need people, and there's a lot of parts, and we'll see if we can get this off the ground. Okay, uh, listen, this is from Judy in Branford, Ontario, Canada. She said, I was concerned about my temple recommend, which I needed to be reviewed. My granddaughter was planning to get married, and I wanted to attend the temple ceremony while I was trying to figure out how I could get the ch in the church and pay my tithing. A still voice asked me if going to the temple was necessary to following the Lord. I was surprised by this because I was not thinking along that line at all. But I went through the ritual in my head and discovered that Jesus was not the center of the right. In fact, he was not mentioned. It was all about God and man. Again, the voice said, if it's not necessary, then it's not true. At the time, I was a Molly Mormon, she said, and I tried and true. I set out to prove the church was true. I studied the Doctrine and Covenants for six months. This is the interesting part. While doing that, I was prompted to write down any name I came across. When I finished, I found no proof of truth. Instead, I found that doctrine fell into three categories. One, how to run a church and govern the people. Two, reprimands for those who were disobedient. And three, just off the top of his head, it seems like Joseph Smith's explanation of things, like his sermons. I was a bit disappointed. When I looked at the list of names that I had written down, I discovered that I had written down 60. I took out those who had died and those who had left the church, and I had 47 names. I went to Wikipedia, and I found that all 47 were leaders and future leaders of the church, and all 47 went to Salt Lake Basin with Brigham Young, who remained in the book. 46 of those men practiced polygamy, so one of those guys didn't. That answered a lot of questions for me, the main ones being, why did the saints leave Kirkland and Nauvoo. I was always told it was because of great religious persecution. This did not seem right because in the United States, it's against the law, it should have been against the law, to do that, persecute people for religion. The real reason was it was because they wanted the right to practice polygamy. They were fugitives from justice and criminals. Now, there's two sides to every story, but I thought those insights were uh, unique, something I haven't heard about the names that were in the Doctrine and Covenants and, uh, and how those 
the preponderance went to Salt Lake City and maybe some theory on why they escaped from here instead of staying. I'm not sure all of them did, but just a thought. This is from Mark G. I'm 16 years old and have a question. My mom is a true believer in the LDS Church in Provo. My father is a born-again Christian in Cedar City. I recently told my mom that I do not believe the LDS Church anymore and I don't want to go on a mission. For the past month, I have been receiving massive pressure with some religious threats. If I don't do this, this will happen to me, for example. If you don't do that, this will happen. You know, Christians and people of all faiths kind of do that to each other. Uh, I've told her the quote from President Hinckley about Mormons not believing in the traditional Christ and many other things, but she won't believe my research on it. My question is, what can I say or do to keep peace with mom, friends, and family, and also help them see the truth? My dad and I enjoy your show very much. Advice is greatly appreciated, and it would be cool if you read this on your show, as there are some kids with a similar story out there. Uh, Mark, what I would say is this. Uh, first and foremost, love and honor and respect your mom. Uh, be a better Christian son to her than you have ever been as a Mormon son. And that means really honor your mom. And if your mom says, I want you to go to church, you're 16, you're my son, go to church, go to the Mormon church. Uh, greater is he that is in you, according to scripture, than he that is in the world. Uh, this will not uh, harm you if you are learning and following and seeking Christ and following God. He will guide you. You don't have to be afraid. You've already made that known. You have a dad who's a Christian. He's going to support you. But if you bring this in, it does something to us. Uh, I don't know how to say it. It just does. And even if your mom waves a white flag and maybe leaves the Mormon church, in, in a large part, it might be just to make you happy because you're her son who she loves. You want her to come out because she loves the Lord. And she's going to know the Lord best by you and your dad showing her who God is through your life and action and love and not through this. Leave this to shows like this and other people who are doing that now and books and stuff. But you, in the family, you love her. Uh... That. This is from Thomas. Uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, dates and numbers. It says, there, my name is Thomas, and I love the information you share with everyone in regard to Christianity, biblical Christianity, Mormonism. My question is, what evidence are Mormons standing on to validate their belief that the Bible has been corrupted? And then he put, church fell into apostasy. Those are two very different questions. So I'm going to answer the one tonight, and he says, uh, God bless you. The one on what evidence do they have that the Bible has been corrupted? All right. We have different segments out there um, when it comes to the Bible. And there are groups that say the King James only, and it is word perfect. We have people who say that the other translations are acceptable too, and maybe not word perfect, but as the Holy Spirit's there, sufficient to lead a person to what God wants them to know and do. Is there anything in the Bible that sh is, shows it is corrupted? There are. There are things. When I became an evangelical Christian at Calvary Chapel, I bought into hook, line, and sinker that it's word perfect. 
and that was before I gave the time to study and look at all of it. Now, that being said, uh, there are dates and numbers, and there's a few word choices between the translations and the Greek that uh, are different. Let me just tell you this. We have 123,000, I think, Greek words that make up the New Testament. Maybe it's less than that. The whole Bible, Septuagint translation of the Old Testament and the Greek translation of the Bible, the whole Bible has 788,000 English words. So you take a hundred and something thousand words and you suddenly get to 788,000 words. That means we're using seven words of English to explain every one word in the original language. You're going to have problems. So don't get hung up on this. The the Word of God is secondary, the Spirit is primary, the the Word of God is secondary, and it's there to teach you and guide you. If you come across a passage that doesn't ring true, do your homework. And when you do your homework, you'll see if it's consistent with manuscript evidence, or you'll see if there has been a challenge on it. And there are not that many. However, let me tell you three. There's one that we just covered last Sunday in our campus uh, uh, meet, and it's called the Johannine Comma. And it's in John chapter 5, verse 7 in the King James. If you read the revised version text, chapter, verse 7 does not exist. Why? It was inserted. It's an inserted text by some zealous scribe who thought he needed to capture and summarize the contents of the Trinity. And he does it in the Johannine comma. There's one. Ironically, another one has, to also, has also to do with the Trinitarian concept, and it's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19. In Matthew 28, verse 19, it says, Jesus says, Go ye therefore, baptizing in my name, in the name of the Father and in the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what the uh, King James text says. Unfortunately, that was inserted according to most manuscripts. Now, what evidence do I have besides manuscript evidence? We have a church historian. His name is Eusebius. He was in the early church years. He's called an early church father. Eusebius quotes Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission passage, 17 times in his writings. He never quotes in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Never. He has Jesus say, go forth and baptize in my name. That's all he says. 17 times the church historian using very recent Greek manuscripts writes, all Jesus said was go forth. What other evidence do we have? When you read the book of Acts and they went forth and were baptizing, did they ever in any instance baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? No, never, not once, never, ever. But... Uh, they baptized in Jesus' name, like he said in Eusebius' trans, uh, 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 copying of what the manuscript said. So we know that it was some scribe inserted that to lay out a formula on how to see God. Does it make the entire Bible a failure? No. In fact, when people come out and they say, the Bible has to be perfect or you can't trust it, that's, that's craziness. It has to be perfect or you can't trust it. You know, when you read any literary work, they're not perfect. But can you enjoy them? Can you learn from them? Can you grow from them? Yes. And this is the word of God in in, in, in all places. 
Uh, the final one is in Acts chapter 8 with the baptism of the Ethiopian. Uh, it is believed by most scholars that the Ethiopian said, hey, there's water, why not baptize me? And they went and were baptized. But in the King James, there's an insertion of uh, Philip says to the Ethiopian, if you believe with all your heart, you uh, may be baptized. And it's thought that the writers or scribes inserted that because they thought too many flippant baptisms were going on in that time. And so we need, to, we need to solidify maybe a little questionnaire before someone is baptized. And so they inserted this comment from Philip to the Ethiopian. Well, if you believe, you may be baptized. And that is held up to high scrutiny as, as uh, in critical analysis of not being in the original. So those are the three main things of the word being corrupted. I would suggest that there are other supports that show it is really a remarkable book that uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls show, you know, that it is remarkably consistent, that all the manuscript evidence shows it is remarkably uh, consistent. We have three callers, I'm gonna get to them right now, but I just gotta say one more thing. This is a little out there. When Jesus came and came unto earth, he was the word made flesh, right? Was his flesh perfect? Did he ever get a cavity? Did he ever have an acne scar? Did he ever uh, get wounded before going to the cross? Was his flesh uh, perfect? The word made flesh? Did people look at him in the flesh and say, that's the son of God, that's the son of God? Or did they know him by the spirit? His spirit was perfect. It was without sin, without blemish, without anything. But his flesh was a human being. It was a man. He experienced all that we did. Stay with me. The word made paper. Same thing. We have the word made flesh. He ascended. Now we have the word made paper. It reveals the will of God. Does it have Mars? Does it have cavities? Does it have tooth decay? Does it have acne scars? It does. But we know that word by the Spirit. We don't know it by the literal words. We know it by the Spirit. There is the parallel on how to see the Bible with its defects and its blemishes and its few things relative to the Spirit, the same way we would look at Christ in the flesh, relative to the Spirit that abided within Him. Let's go to Sayer in Montana. Sayer, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, uh, yeah, Sean. Um, I'm a member of the LDS Church. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in all honesty, Sean, I don't go that much. I don't, you know, go to church every Sunday and all that. And uh, I'm here in Montana. I'm from Colorado. I come here every summer, you know, just to work on uh, my grandpa's farm, you know, and... um I go to church with them, and uh, the more I go, I feel like they don't talk about, you know, Christ enough. I feel like they talk about Joseph Smith and, you know, their doctrine. Yeah. You know, I, every time I go to, you know, our classes, I, I don't, they all, you know, priest ordinances and temple recommends and tithing and I just, I feel like they need to talk about more of Christ's, you know, crucifixion, but I don't know. Oh, how old are you, Sayer? 16. Uh, are your parents active LDS too? No. Well, I mean, they, you know, they used to when they were younger, but not anymore. Uh, and uh, are you allowed to uh, maybe venture to another church to find one that might be more suitable to, to your desires to hear more about Christ? 
Yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, you know, I'd recommend that you try to do that. And in the meantime, even if your parents say no or your grandparents that you're staying with in Montana, whatever, say no, you can always grab a Bible and uh, open it up and just start reading. Maybe you start reading in the book of John and just relax. And, and I would challenge you to do this, Sayer, and that's go directly to God, directly to God and say, God, look, I, I don't know what I'm doing here. I want to know what the truth is. Show me the truth. And you know what? He promises that if you ask him, He'll respond to you. He will show you the truth. And you don't have to trust the bishop. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust some pastor at another church that you go to. You can hear what the truth is, but he will guide you by his spirit if you trust him directly. So, Sayer, I would challenge you that you go to God and you ask him to lead you and open your eyes. And I promise you, my brother, if you're a seeker, he will reveal himself and you will have eyes to see and ears to hear and you'll know what to do. All right. Thank you, Sean. Hey, thanks for watching, my friend. God bless. All right, you too. Okay, bye. Let's go to Anthony in Mesa, Arizona. Before we go to someone named Mark in Ireland to wrap it up, although we only have line two, is Anthony gone? Is Derek running the phone lines tonight too? Oh. <laughs> All right, we're going to Mark in Ireland. <laughs> How are you, McCraney? I'm going good. How you doing? Um, well, um. I want to hear you say some um, some words to me, please, in uh, Irish. Okay. What do you want me to What do you want me to say? Give oh, me no, another beer. Do you have any particular words that you might want to say to me in Irish? For example, having learned their pronunciation. Uh, I cannot recall all the lessons you've given me through emails, Mark. Oh. Please help me. Uh, how How convenient. Okay. Um, Look, I, I know there's another call ahead of me. Am I right? Yes. Right. I'll be as quick as I can. Okay. Um, take you back to when your girls were really, really small. Okay. Okay. Really small, tiny wee girlies. Right. Do you remember you might have told them little white lies? Yes. Like, the moon is made of green cheese. Yes. For example. And there might have been other white lies in there that you might have told them. And then as they got older, they kind of learned themselves that those white lies weren't really true. Lying to children is a philosophy in itself, and you learn it in your psychology course, psychology degree, it, I've heard, not that I know anything about that. Um, and you've spoken about this in the past, about the upper echelons of the church, the top, top, top level. There's also in psychology, there's, um, there's a doctrine called illusory superiority. Hmm. Have you ever heard of it? No. Right. Illusory superiority is when you have something or you know something and it, it makes you somehow feel better or um, superior in other way to other people, but you really aren't. Hmm. So you can imagine, you, you're probably seeing where I'm going with this. You can probably remember when you were in church, you might have felt that way about people who didn't know the full truth. I did. That because you know the full truth, you feel somehow bumped up a little bit. Yeah. Right. Now, combine that with the feeling that you have, the obligation that you must have. If you're in the upper echelons of the church, combine the two together where you feel obligated to lie to those who may not necessarily understand the truth of what's going on. You want to shield them from the bad things in the church, the bad things in the Mormon doctrine, 
the bad things that they mightn't be able for. So let's just kind of pretend they don't exist for a minute. And at the same time, let's talk up all the good things and let's talk up how wonderful it is that, you know, we have God, we have Jesus and, and wonderful else. And then slowly, one at a time, to only those people who are mentally strong enough, drip feed in yeah. Joseph Smith. Yeah. Drip feed in Doctrine and Covenants. Drip feed in, oh, you have to pay your tithing, by the way, just so you know. And drip feed in, oh, you have to go through the temple, just so you know. And drip feed in, oh, yeah, you have to get married and have kids and everything like that and sealed and everything else. Oh, and drip feed in, yeah, and you can't leave the church either. Yeah, terrible, sorry, endure to the end. And all those little drip feeds until the person is either dead or they're so entrenched in the church that they themselves get bumped up to the upper echelons of the church themselves. I think it's a great analysis, my friend. We have great analysis. It's me giving it to you. You're a smart young man. Listen, uh, one question before we go to Anthony in Mesa, Arizona. I want to know if you can talk. I want to hear your interpretation, your impression of an American. I want you to talk. I want you to speak like an American. I want you to hear what you think we sound like. Okay, right. Well, I, I, I'm going to read that there's, um, there's a comment here in the live chat. All right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give that a go. <clears throat> and it's, it's actually a quote from Hebrews 11:16. Okay. <clears throat> You're putting me on the spot, McCraney. I'm going to make you talk in Irish sometime when you're on the show. All right, go for it. But without sight, it is impossible to please him. <laughs> for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently <laughs> seek him. Do you know how insulting that is? No. Is it, is it close? No! What? Uh, do, you, do you think we all crawled out from under a barn? No, 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 hey, quid pro quo, McCraney. You pick up something there, pick up some of your notes, and you pick, you start reading in an Irish accent. Okay, I'll, sure I'll, I'll read do. this really quick. Uh, well, come on. Hey there, my name is Thomas, and I love the information you share with everyone in regards to Mormonism and how Mormonism differs from biblical Christianity. My question That's is, what evidence Sorry, are that, Mormons that, standing that, on to validate that? <laughs> Is that supposed to sound like me? How hey, I don't have a you? pint of whiskey in me. I need a pint before I can do it right. Right, go on. Go, go to your last call. I'll talk to you soon. Love Take you, brother. Bye. Good luck. We're going to Anthony in Mesa, Arizona. Again missing from the phone. Oh, here we go. It says line two, Danita. He's on line three. Anthony, you're on the air. Anthony? Anthony. It's unbelievable. We pay them. You can't believe the money we pay them. <laughs> He's on one now. Anthony, Anthony, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, sorry about all that. How you doing? Hey, I'm fine. So How are you doing? Doing good. Go for it. Cool. All right. Well, you. this is Anthony from, I don't know, a couple, maybe a month or so ago, a month and a half. You oh. You the uh, knife to a gunfight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I did uh, read into it, but it's been a couple weeks since I did finish reading it. And I guess, like, at the end, like, it just, like, when I was looking at uh, Christianity when I was younger, this is basically the model I was looking at, but I couldn't really find, you know, an outlet for other believers that had kind of this situation. Huh. As in, you know... Um, just the inner workings, you know, I was 
you get older, you see like you know the rules and policies that you that go on and all the uh, drama behind all that. So it was just really in reference to your book, uh, one size question, and like so say everything does happen, like uh, the brick and mortar, uh, just the unshakable things, you know, become destroyed. Yeah. And you know, all the uh, rules and policies and all that kind of stuff just goes by the wayside. No ties, building funds, collection fees, you know, all that. Yeah. It's like, in my mind, when I was first reading this, I'm like, I think this is just an assumption of me. You know, like early church was probably like this. Yeah. It's like, and then man becomes man and does man things. Yeah. So my curiosity was, like, say all this, somehow is able to happen in today's world like what would stop man from being man again even though the spirit's there you know man will still creep in and i don't know it's just it's like i really like this book because it parallels with what i truly believe yeah but like it's really hard for me to go okay i have my low comfort zone and i can read this in my low comfort comfortable spot and you try to take this you know this faith love and just you know no rules of man and try to bring that out like just even me personally just trying to share it it's like the convolution of modern day churches with the bands and all this kind of stuff and the rock and roll and the you know the uh airport size uh you know the mega churches it's like how do you see this really becoming something you know you know we point out in the or point out in the book anthony that you're right. If we all jumped on board and we deconstructed, we sold off our assets, helped the poor, helped support them, got rid of all the brick and mortar, got rid of the ties, got somewhere along the way, once that was rolling, if everybody really bought into that, somebody would stand up and say, you know, I think we need to organize a little bit better. And then someone would say, yeah, I think we need a building to do it. And then someone would say, yeah, we need funding to be able to build it by the bill. And you're right. You're absolutely right. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And it doesn't mean we can't have a revolution with people now that might be just fed up enough. I think the kids in college and below are fed up enough with all the bullcrap religion they have got that we might be at a prime time for there to be a revolution. And the revolution will start when people stop paying tithes. That's, well, that will be the start because the pastors will be freaking out with those big budgets and things will start to change. Well, they, they do say money is the root of all evil. So they certainly do. To attack. Yeah. Money side. Yeah. Anyway, great, great uh, thoughts. And I'm, you know, at least where you are, Anthony, try to, try to, to share it and, uh, and get people to just say, look, it's just Jesus, live your life, do what you're gonna do, relax. Forget about religion. Forget about the church. You know. All right. One one quick other little snippet because the whole love thing. And I tried <coughs> to share this love idea with my friend, and he just rolls his eyes. So like when you're addressing love, because um, I look at it more of a filial love, you know, like a brotherly love, and it almost gets convoluted into an idea of like a hippy dippy love. Yeah. So like, I don't know. How would you necessarily approach that? Just I'd define it by how scripture defines it. And I would look at 
the adjectives that uh, the writers of scripture use to describe love, which is kind, patient, long-suffering, temperate, uh, does not seek its own, is not quick to judge, all the things in 1 Corinthians 15, the fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, joy, all, that's how I would define love. If that kind of love is present, then the love of God is abundant. And it doesn't include, you know, uh, love means, uh, you know, great sex, or, I mean, that might be included in some forms of love, but the biblical definition of God's love is different than the human definition of, of love. And so I would use the Bible to guide whether you're going with Christian love or human love. So you're looking more at an agape love then? Definitely, okay. definitely the agape love. We're, pretty, we're not too bad at the other types of love. We're pretty darn good at eros love. We're pretty darn good, well, we're okay at familial love. We're good at storge love. We're good at, we're, we're okay. But agape love is where we're failing, and that's the one you'd focus on. All right. Hey, brother, thanks so much for watching. No problem. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Really quickly, I'm not going to say his last name, though it's listed here. Hayden says, hi, Sean. I still struggle with things of the flesh. I pray for deliverance, but I can't shake it, mainly lust. What do you suggest I do? I would suggest that you see yourself in, in, in somewhat of a dualistic way. And Paul does this, so I'm not making it up. He says, that which I do, I don't want to do, and that which I don't want to do, I do. And I would suggest that you don't see yourself as your flesh. I would say you see yourself, your flesh, as just part of being human. That is always going to be involved in lust. It's always going to want to overeat, and it's always going to want to bang chicks. It's always going to want to do porn. That's what your flesh does. That's its job, is to feed itself. Okay? So don't see yourself as that. See yourself as a new creature in Christ. So what does the new creature in Christ do? The new creature in Christ tries to love neighbor, tries to serve, tries to do this, doesn't want to grab his neighbor's wife, doesn't want to self-serve, doesn't want... And so that's how you start to overcome. You see yourself in your new identity as a new creation, as a Christian. And that, along with Scripture and dying to self by the Spirit, forget about reformation, forget about trying to uh, discipline yourself and your flesh, Forget about trying to make your flesh better. It's not going to be better. It's always going to be corrupt. Accept that and then see yourself as a, as a spirit child of God. That's how we'll try to put it tonight. Hopefully that helps. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out, I'm going in This man's awake, a storm's arising The dawn's awaiting till the 